The passage today is from Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is the word of God. Well, it is, uh, it is indeed my honor, uh, a, sp- a very special honor for me uh, to be able to, to preach here. Uh, I see some familiar faces and um, just really good to share the word of God with you guys. So I just want to thank uh, Pastor Rob and the, and the elders here for, for giving me this opportunity. Uh, let's, uh, let's, get right into, let's get right into our study here. Our Father in heaven, uh, Lord, we just pray that you would send your spirit. Lord, that your spirit would fill me, Lord, that I might preach your word uh, effectively. Uh, Lord, that I would say exactly what it is that you want your people to hear. And Lord, I pray uh, for the people as they listen. Lord, I pray that you would allow them to be attentive. Uh, Lord, I pray that your spirit, uh, Lord, would cut and convict uh, where where necessary. And God, I pray all this uh, in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Well, the parable that was just read uh, from Luke chapter 18, it's only found in the Gospel of Luke, happens to be uh, my most favorite parable in the entire Bible. Jesus told a lot of parables, right? These are stories, short stories with a point, some kind of point that he's trying to get at. And so let's go right ahead and let's start thinking about this parable. Let's dissect this parable. Who are the main characters? Well, verse 10, follow along. Uh, in your Bibles, please. Luke 18, verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, we've got this idea in our heads, probably from from hearing many sermons and, and Bible studies and Bible reading, that Pharisee equals bad and tax collector equals good. But if we have that mindset, we're not going to catch on to just how shocking what Jesus is saying in this parable is. And so, just for a moment, let's get rid of all the preconceived notions that we have in our heads about Pharisees and about tax collectors. The new equations that you should have in your head is this, the equation that the original audience of Jesus would have had, Pharisee equals good and tax collector equals bad. First, the Pharisee Back in Jesus' day, these were the guys, right? These were the well-respected theologians. They were the religious leaders in the communities. They were the equivalent of pastors and deacons and, and officers of the church, right? These are the guys that you looked up to because of their godliness and their holiness and their devout commitment to God. And in this context, they were experts in prayer, right? They knew their way around the temple, and they knew what to do, and they knew what to say. And then in contrast, you've got this tax collector 
right? tax collectors or, or publicans, if you're, if you're reading the King James. Uh, these, these were Jewish men who purchased from the Roman government the right to collect taxes and customs and tolls from their people. And so they were hated. Right? They were reviled because they were considered to be unpatriotic. Right? They were uh, friends of the oppressive government, and they did all that just to make a dollar. Right? They were known for their dishonesty. They were known for their backhanded ways. They were known for the ways in which they would abuse the system to enrich themselves. We can guess from the fact that Zacchaeus, the tax collector, he immediately went about giving back half of his wealth to the poor, that a lot of the wealth of the average tax collector was ill-gotten. In contrast to the Pharisees, who were well-respected, these tax collectors were treated as social outcasts. They were, they were vile, they were dirty, they were ritually unclean. A good Pharisee wouldn't even come into physical contact with someone as vile as a tax collector. And so you've got the Pharisee and you've got the tax collector. Now let's look at what they say or, or how they pray. Let's first look at what the, tax, uh, what the Pharisee said. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What this Pharisee is praying here is known as a praise psalm. Basically, the person praying gives thanks to God for something that he's done or, or, or some blessing that God has provided. And that's exactly what the Pharisee does here, right? He has a very thankful heart. And look at all this, look at all this guy does, right? Remember how we talked about how the Pharisees were kind of like the spiritual role models and, and leaders of the community? Well, look at this guy. He's like your role model's role model, right? What, what Paul would have called a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He fasted twice a week. Right? He probably likely fasted on Monday and Thursday of every week. He would only eat bread and water on those days. Now, the only requirement in the law of Moses was to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur. But this guy goes way beyond the minimum, way beyond the, the call of duty. He goes 104 times beyond the call of duty. He says once a year, you know, fasting once a year is for you guys. Me, I'm going to fast twice a week. Right? This guy was very committed. And not only does he fast twice a week, but he also gives tithes of all that he got. And so a tithe, of course, is that he gave away 10% of, of what he got. Under the law of Moses, he's only required to tithe certain things and, and certain crops. But this guy goes way beyond the bare minimum, and he gave with overwhelming generosity. Right? He gave a tithe of everything, not just that which he was required to give a tithe of. Right? This guy was very, very giving towards God. Now, in contrast, what about this other guy's prayer, or the tax collector's prayer? Really, there's not much to say about his prayer, because he really doesn't have much going for him. He just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's very far from an eloquent prayer. It's very short and concise, but again, what do you expect? He's a tax collector. He probably doesn't even know how to pray. Right? We're surprised reading the story that he's even allowed into the temple. What do we know about their physical posture? Well, the Pharisee, he knows his way around the temple, right? He's been there before, and so he probably waltzes right into his usual spot. He belongs there. We know that he's praying standing up 
probably with his arms lifted up and looking upwards. That was a common praying posture back then. The tax collector, we're told, has his head down and is beating his chest in anguish. Where are they? Well, we know that they're both at the temple. The tax collector, we know from the text, stands far off. He's probably in one of the outer courts of the temple. He wouldn't be welcome in the inner courts. And so he stands far off. Because of the comparison made between the two, we can probably assume that the Pharisee is standing much closer to the holy place in the temple, voicing his prayer. So that's pretty much the information that we can draw out of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I want to spend the rest of our time looking at three key differences between these two men. I want to look at the difference in their understanding of God. I want to look at the difference in their request of God. And then thirdly, I want to look at the difference in their standing before God. First, let's look at their understanding of God. Well, if we're going to talk about their understanding of God, we need to have an understanding of God ourselves to begin. And I think it's fair to say that any understanding of God begins with the fact that God is holy. And when I talk about the fact that God is holy, I'm referring to the fact that he's completely separate and different from us, his creation. He's completely set apart. He is perfect, without sin, morally pure, without a trace of evil. He does everything well. He does everything right. He does everything justly. He does everything good. In a word, he is holy. And because God is holy, he requires from us perfect holiness in order to be in his presence. He can't tolerate. He can't accept our sin. He is perfect in holiness, and so he requires of us perfection in holiness. And our proper understanding of the holiness of God does two things for us neither of which the Pharisee understood. First, a proper understanding of the holiness of God makes us think much less of ourselves. Much less of ourselves. Much less of what we've done and what we've accomplished. Because if we understand that God is holy, that God is way up there, perfect in righteousness, and here we are, right, being righteous, and we're giving our tithes and we're fasting, and then we quickly realize that we're nowhere close to where God is, right? Our righteousness means literally nothing because we don't even come close to approaching the same stratosphere that God's perfection and righteousness is. The Bible says that our best deeds are but filthy rags. And so instead of our righteousness, what we start to see even in our good works is our sinfulness, all the ways in which we're unlike this perfect God, all the ways in which we've broken his perfect law, all the ways in which we've gone against his perfect precepts. Understanding God's holiness makes us realize just how wicked we are as sinners. Now with that in mind, let's look at how these two men in this parable differ in their understanding of God. First, look at the Pharisee. Now he seems like a great guy on the surface. He seems like a righteous, religious guy. And it seems like he's voicing a solid, thankful prayer. But the problem is that the Pharisee has a completely incorrect understanding of God and himself. We talked earlier about how the Pharisee's prayer is in the model of a praise psalm, right, in which the petitioner thanks God for something that God has done or a blessing that God has provided. But in this case, here's the question, 
What is the Pharisee thanking God for? Well, the base, basically, the Pharisee is thanking God for himself. Right? God, I want to thank you for making me so great. That's basically the gist of the prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like this, this or that, that person or this person. I thank you that I do this and that I do that. As if God owed him something because of his great devotion and his great character. God, you should be honored that I am on your team. Look carefully at the words of his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, if you're counting there, that's 33 words in the ESV translation, and five are the first person singular, right? I, 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 I. His entire prayer is about himself and what he's done. And so, yes, on the surface, it's a prayer to God, but in reality, it's just him being proud of who he is and patting himself on the back. One commentator wrote about the Pharisee that he glances at God, but he contemplates himself. Sure, he mentions God, right? He thanks God, but primarily his focus is inward. The NASB translation says that the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, right? His prayer is self-centered. It's me-centered. It's to himself and that shows a complete lack of understanding of the holiness of God, that he can think so highly of himself and what he has accomplished in the presence of a holy God. Add to that the fact that nowhere in his prayer is there anything about his sinfulness, anything about his unworthiness. There's no sense of need. There's no confession. There's no contrition. Right? If you're actually in the presence of a holy God and you understand his holiness, you have no other reaction but to understand your sinfulness and your unworthiness. Most of you know the story of Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has got this grand vision of the holy, holy, holy God on his throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. And there's all these angels around the throne covering their face because of the radiance of God's holiness. And they're all praising him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah is having this crystal clear vision of the holiness of God, the true nature and the true character of God. And what is his reaction? It's certainly not to thank God for how great and awesome he is. Right? Can you imagine if in that scene in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah just goes off and says, Oh, God, I thank you that you appeared to me in this vision because I have been waiting so long to thank you in person for making me so great. No. His reaction is much more like the tax collector's. Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Right? The first thing that comes to his mind is, is not how great he is and the great things that he's done, but it's his own uncleanness and, and sinfulness and unworthiness and brokenness in the presence of a holy God. This Pharisee has no idea. He has no clue about his own sin. He can only see his own greatness because of his blinders of self-righteousness. The tax collector, though, the tax collector gets it. 
He understands who God is. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector, but signaling a, a, a stark contrast, right? A complete difference in everything about the approaches and the words of these two men. Remember how they mentioned that the Pharisee uses the first person singular, I, five times in his prayer. It's all centered on him and his own greatness. Well, the tax collector never uses the first person singular subject, I. He does use an implied second person, you, as in you have mercy on me, God. But he never refers to himself. Because in an understanding of the holiness and awesomeness of God, how could he start listing off his own achievements and accomplishments? It's as if, let's say I met Albert Einstein, one of the greatest scientists and greatest minds in human history. And I met him, and all I wanted to tell him about was the fact that when I was in sixth grade, I finished in the top three in my class in the science fair. Right? That would be so absolutely ridiculous. And in the same way, in an understanding of the holiness of God, how could the Pharisee keep the focus on himself and not on the awesome God of the universe? The Pharisee constantly keeps pointing to his own achievements, his fasting, his tithing, his being a good person. The tax collector, in contrast, right, the only doing that the tax collector points to is his being a sinner. God have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector understands the holiness of God and how a proper understanding of that, how it makes us think much less of ourselves. The second thing that a right understanding of God and his holiness prompts us to do is to stop comparing ourselves to other people. Because if we understand how holy God is and how utterly short we fall, we would stop looking around ourselves so much in order to make ourselves feel better. It's like God's up here, and his requirement for perfection and holiness is up here, but we're so busy down here looking around ourselves, thinking, well, that guy, uh, he's here, but, but I'm a little more holy than he is, so I'm a little up here. Well, that person, uh, they might be a little bit above me. Remember who Jesus is telling this parable to. Look at verse 9. He's telling this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Right? That's the Pharisee. He's full of contempt for this tax collector. God, I thank you that I am nothing like that guy. I bet you he doesn't fast twice a week. I bet you that he's an extortioner, that he's unjust, that he's an adulterer, but, I, but I'm not. I'm nothing like this guy. And so his pride, the Pharisee's pride, was based on looking at other people and seeing that they weren't as righteous as he was. Look at how verse 11 specifically points out that he was standing by himself. There is no way he's going to be standing next to that tax collector. Absolutely, I'm nothing like that guy. Thank you, God, that I'm nothing like that guy. But the tax collector, again, understood the holiness of God, and in light of that, how pointless it was to try to prove that he was better than other people. The ESV translation of the tax collector's prayer is, God be merciful to me, a sinner. The Greek, though, it's, it's more emphatic if it's literally translated. It says something closer to, God be merciful to me, the sinner. 
right? The foremost, great, worst, horrible sinner, right? If the Pharisee thinks that he is the saint, the tax collector understands that he is the sinner. Not just a sinner amongst other sinners, and and so it's okay because I'm at least better than that guy or that guy. No, he is the sinner. Forget about thinking how I compare to that person or this person. Just like Paul says when, when he says that he's the chief of sinners, He's done comparing himself because he understands where God is in his holiness and where he is relative to that. And so a right view of God leads us to think much less of ourselves and our works, and it leads us to stop comparing ourselves with other people. And I think this is a danger for so many of us, right? because we're, well, we're attenders of church, and we're members of church, and we're officers in the church and whatever it might be. And for the most part, right, we are what society would call good people, right? Compared to the general population, we're nice and we're polite and we're kind and we're caring. We're family people. We're good neighbors. We're good citizens. We're good workers. And so what does that mean? It means, first of all, that everybody around us, right, our families and and our neighbors and our coworkers, they tell us what good, nice people we are, right? They, They impute this righteousness onto us. But it also means that in our hearts, some of us will will openly admit that we do this, and and, and others of us will just kind of do it secretly in our hearts. We'll look around us, whether it's at school or at work or in the neighborhood, and we'll say, at least I'm not like that guy. God, I thank you that I am not like so-and-so, that alcoholic or that thief or that philanderer. I go to church. I serve at church. I give regularly. And so we're busy establishing this like relative righteousness compared to everybody else, thinking that that and that alone will make us good enough for God. But no, God requires absolute righteousness and holiness. God is holy, perfectly holy, and requires perfection and holiness from us, not this comparative or or relative righteousness. And so you'll notice that the Pharisee and the tax collector both start off their prayer in the exact same way, right, God. But from there, the two diverge drastically. The Pharisee is completely self-consumed in all that he has done. The tax collector is completely focused on God. Conscious of his own works in a complete misunderstanding of who God is, the Pharisee sees only his own righteousness. Conscious of his sin in light of a correct understanding of God's holiness, the tax collector sees only his need for mercy. Which leads me to my second point. The first point was that the Pharisee and tax collector differed in their understanding of God. Now we're going to see how the Pharisee and the tax collector differ in their request of God. A quick look at how the Pharisee prays. And you might think to yourself, well, the Pharisee really isn't making any requests. He's not asking for anything. He simply thanks God for how great he is, but he doesn't make any requests of God. I'm going to argue that he does, but let me address the tax collector first. It's very clear what the tax collector is asking for. The tax collector is asking for mercy. God be merciful to me, a sinner. We talked earlier about the sinfulness of man and how uh, clear it is with a proper understanding of the holiness of God. Well, a proper understanding of your sin and God's holiness leaves us in a very bad place. 
right? Because a holy God must punish sin. A holy God can't just sit there and tolerate the sin that's committed against him. An eternally holy God must eternally punish sin. And the way he does that is by sending sinners to an eternity in hell, where sinners are eternally punished consciously for the sins that they've committed against the holy God. And so that's the situation that the tax collector finds himself in, understanding the holiness of God, understanding his own shortcomings and lack of holiness, and then he realizes that for God to be totally fair and just, God would punish him with an eternity in hell. And so it's that realization that causes him to beat his chest in anguish and cry out helplessly, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Please show me mercy. Please do not punish me like I deserve with an eternity in hell. Please don't pour out your wrath that I deserve on me. Please, if there is any way, please show mercy to me and spare me. Right? That's his request. The tax collector asks for mercy. The Pharisee, on the other hand, the Pharisee asks for something completely different. The Pharisee asks for justice. You say, well, what do you mean the the Pharisee asks for justice? Well, what is justice? Justice is what is fair. Justice is getting exactly what you rightfully deserve. Now, the Pharisee never explicitly asks that God gives him justice, but that's essentially what we do when we trust in our own righteousness, right, in what we've done. We look at everything that we've done for God, that's what the Pharisee's doing here, and we say, God, give me what I deserve. Reward me, God, for my actions. And that's what justice is. Justice asks for what we deserve. Now, of course, what this Pharisee actually deserves is an eternity in hell, because what he really is is a self-righteous sinner. And so he's absolutely crazy. He's out of his mind for suggesting or implying that God gave him justice. But that's where a wrong view of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of ourselves will get you. Right? Give me my due. Look at my badges and my trophies, my tithes and my sacrifices. You owe me, God. Give me what I deserve. Because he's got such a wrong view of God and of himself, he has no idea that what he actually deserves is an eternity of conscious punishment. And so here now is my question for all of us. What is it that we want? What is it that we want to ask God for? Is it mercy or is it justice? Because if you're not asking for mercy, by default what you're asking for is justice. If you're trusting in your own righteousness, if you're looking at at what you've done and, and who you are as your merits for heaven, what you're essentially asking for is justice. If you're not pleading with God to spare you from the wrath that you deserve, if you're not helplessly crying out for God to show you mercy and not punish you for all the wrong that you've done against him, then essentially what you're asking for is to get exactly what you deserve. You're essentially asking for his justice. And if you're sitting here today and you're not trusting in Jesus, what you're saying, whether you know it or not, is God, give me justice. Give me what I deserve. But you don't want that. We don't want that. The full fury and wrath of a holy God against our sin, we don't want that. None of us really wants justice. And yet some of us, by trusting in our own righteousness, that's essentially what we're asking for. 
And so we looked at how these two men differed in their understanding of God. The Pharisee did not understand the holiness of God and thus thought himself to be something and looked down on other people, whereas the tax collector rightly understood his sinfulness in light of God's holiness. Then we looked at how these two men differed in their request of God. The Pharisee asks for justice, while the tax collector asks for mercy. And now we'll look at the third and final difference between these two men. It's in their standing before God. Look at verse 14. I tell you, this man, referring to the tax collector, went down to his house justified. Now what does it mean for the tax collector to be justified? Well, it means that he's been acquitted of his sins. He's been forgiven One easy way to remember this, justified, means just as if I'd never sinned. His sins have been wiped clean, right? He's been forgiven. His record of sin has been purged. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed his transgressions from him. It's Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out, right? Wipe away my transgressions. So this Pharisee here, I'm sorry, this tax collector here is justified, right? He's got a right standing with God. But is mercy just a free pass? Is mercy just God saying, okay, you know what? I know you've sinned against me. I know you've done all this iniquity, but but don't worry about your sin. You're okay. No, that's not what mercy is. But there's a seeming contradiction in the fact that God is a God of mercy and that God is just. Right? We just talked about how those two concepts are opposites. How can a just God have mercy and not dispense justice? Right? Because if God is just and God is fair, he has to fairly punish the sin that's been committed against him. And so how then can God show mercy to anybody? Well, when the tax collector asks for mercy... The word there for be merciful in the Greek, it's it's a word that literally means to be propitiated or or satisfied or appeased. As in, please don't pour out your wrath towards me, but be satisfied and appeased so you don't pour out your wrath on me. And the only way that the wrath of God can be satisfied or appeased is through what we call substitution. Substitution that says that you... I, we don't pay the punishment for our sin because Jesus has already paid it. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so the way that a just God can have mercy on sinners like us, sinners like this tax collector, is that Jesus bears our sins. God the Father makes Jesus to be sin even even though he had never sinned in his 33 years of life. And in exchange, we get his perfect righteous record, right? That's substitution. So God is just because our rebellion and our sin against him is punished, but God is merciful, right? He spares us this wrath. He spares us an eternity in hell. He forgives us and he loves us and he saves us, but he punishes his son in our place. His son whom he had loved in perfect unity for all eternity, he punishes and he crushes on the cross for sinners like me and like you. 
that's substitution, that's justice and mercy meeting at the cross in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. And so the tax collector's cry for mercy, it's not like this general cry for mercy. It's a specific request that Jesus would die for his sins, right? Remember that the tax collector has gone to the temple to pray, and at this time of day, there would be an animal sacrifice going on. And so the tax collector is begging God that the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, which is what these animal sacrifices are pointing to, that they, that they would find their fulfillment in, that that would be applied to him. God be satisfied towards me because Jesus has died in my place. That's what the tax collector is praying. The third difference is in their standing before God. The tax collector was justified. Well, now the question is, what about the Pharisee? Verse 14 again. I tell you, this man the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. The single most important word in that verse, the single most important word in this entire parable, the word that your attention needs to be drawn to is this word rather. Right? Rather is a word that's used to distinguish things that mutually exclude each other. So if I say to you that I had tea rather than coffee, what I mean is that I had tea, but I did not have coffee. Well, if I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee, what's that telling you? That's saying that the tax collector is justified. His sins are forgiven. The Pharisee is not justified. He is still in his sins. He still has the wrath of God upon him. And so, in a sense, each man got exactly what they asked for, right? The tax collector humbly pleads and begs for mercy, knowing his own inability, and he gets it, right? He's justified through the death and resurrection of Jesus on his behalf. The Pharisee asks for justice. God, look at all this awesome stuff that I've done, how, how great of a person I am. Give me my due, and he got it. Not what he thought, though trusting in his own righteousness to save him. He thought he was going to be rewarded with eternal life for his greatness, but no, rather than the other, tells us that this man was not saved at all. His sin, regardless of how much he tried to minimize it in the light of his self-righteousness, is still unpaid for, and so this man was walking a path straight to hell. God give me justice, and so the Pharisee gets justice, which for him is eternal conscious punishment. He might fast twice a week. He might tithe everything he gets. He might not be an extortioner or unjust or an adulterer. He might not be as socially unacceptable or bad on the outside as this tax collector, but he's still fallen way, way short of the perfect standard of holiness that God requires. And so the tax collector went to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. Let me close by saying three things, three little application points here. The first is to the unsaved people in this room, those of you who would not say that you are Christians, who would honestly admit that today 
you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that maybe you're visiting, maybe you're, you're a friend of somebody, maybe you just are new to the neighborhood and decided to come to church today, whatever it might be, you would openly admit, I am not a Christian today. Your biggest problem, right, and, and surely there, there are many things going on in, in life, many of which I and perhaps the people around you do not know, but your biggest problem and the biggest problem of every sinner is your standing before God. We've all got this problem of rebellion against God, and what we try to do is we try to draw up our own terms of peace. Right? And so the Pharisee, in essence, says, God, here are my terms of peace with you. I won't be an extortioner. I won't be unjust. I won't be an adulterer. I'm not going to be like this, this, this tax collector, that's for sure. I'm going to fast. I'm going to tithe. And that's going to make me right with you. Right, God? So the Pharisee is basically drawing up his own peace treaty with God. And what do we do? Well, we say, God, I'm going to read my Bible. God, I'm going to go to church today. God, I'm going to, I'm going to pray, and, and I'm going to stop cursing, and when I go to work tomorrow, I, I, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to steal. Maybe I'll even uh, put back what I stole. I'm going to be kinder to my wife. I'm going to be a better father. That will make me right with you. But that's just not how it works only way that God makes peace with us is through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. We talked about how the tax collector humbly just doesn't point to anything that he's done or anything that he is, except that he's a sinner and he just begs God for mercy, right? Mercy provided through the death of Jesus. That's it. That's the only terms of peace that God will accept, right? The gospel, the death of Jesus on behalf of sinners like me and like you. Just like the tax collector, what we need to do is we need to cry out for mercy. And then two things to those of you who would say today, I am a Christian, I am saved, I am the redeemed of God. The first is this. Throughout this message, I think at this point I kind of owe an apology to this Pharisee because I really haven't been giving him enough credit. This Pharisee is not a simple, self-righteous person. He's a very sophisticated, self-righteous person. The simple, self-righteous person says, I'm innately good, and so I'm going to go to heaven because I'm good. That's not what the Pharisee says. He's a sophisticated, self-righteous person. He understands that he's totally depraved, that, that he's innately evil and wicked. He doesn't credit himself with his good works. He actually credits God with his good works. He acknowledges that it's God that allows him to be different. So then you might be saying, well, what's the problem then? The problem is not what he believes is the source of his righteousness. It's the object of his trust itself. Right? He believes that God is the source of his righteousness, but at the end of the day, his own righteousness is what he's trusting in. Right? That's the problem. And so we need to understand brothers and sisters, that, that we're not saved because God in his grace allows us to act righteously and behave righteously. We're saved because God is our righteousness. 
right? Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Let me repeat that because this is so important for us to understand. We are not saved because God, in his grace, allows us to be different and, and, and act righteously, more righteously than our neighbors. No, we are saved because God, Jesus Christ himself, is our righteousness. We have his perfect righteous record imputed unto us, given to us, and that's what we need to trust in. Because at the end of the day, even if you give God the credit, if what you are trusting in is the things that you have done, well, then you're in the exact same position as this Pharisee is. What we need to be trusting in, what makes a Christian a Christian, is that we trust in Christ and Christ alone. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The final thing I'll say to those of you who would say that you are saved is that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Let's say that you had an opportunity to sit down with this Pharisee and kind of interview him, and you were to ask him, hey, Mr. Pharisee, are you saved? Are you justified? He probably would answer along the lines of, of course I'm justified, of course I'm saved. I've been saved for this and this years. You want to see fruit of my salvation? I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I get, and and I praise God for that. The Pharisee is sure that he is saved. It's not explicitly stated in the parable, but the implication is clear. The Pharisee walked down to his house thinking he was justified, but he was not. He was self-deceived. And so here's the real danger that that I want to draw our attention to here in closing. The more he tithed, and the more he fasted, and the more he did these things, the more he confirmed in his head the false notion that he was already justified, that he was already saved. You see the danger in that. It's like there are these two paths. One of them is the right path, and the other is the wrong path. If you start out on the wrong path, you can make all the progress you want, but all you're doing is walking further down the wrong path. If you're wrong about what you think, right, that you're saved, if you're wrong about that, the danger is that the longer that you're saved, the more you're going to falsely confirm your salvation with fruit, and the harder it becomes to realize that you're wrong about it to begin with. It's how we are with most things, right? We look for things to confirm what we already believe. And we would be foolish to think that in a church this size, there aren't people like that in this very room. That there aren't people just like this Pharisee in our midst today. Yeah, I got saved 20 years ago. Of course I'm saved. And so you look at anything that's going right in your life, and you see it as fruit, right? Just like this Pharisee saw his, his giving and his tithing and, and, and his praying and his, all that, right? His fasting. He saw that as his fruit. And so you look at the things that are going right in your life and you say, yeah, my kindness towards my brothers and sisters, my, my church attendance, my service towards the church, my Bible knowledge. And you say, all that is my fruit. And if there's something not right, If there's something wrong, you just say, well, I'm struggling with that. And we just kind of brush it off as as sanctification, and and it'll pray for me. But the overwhelming 
evidence in our lives of unrepentant sin that we just kind of brush it off because we already believe we're saved. And so we've become the Pharisee. The Bible says to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. My question is, do we do that? Is it possible? And we need to ask ourselves this question, no matter how long we think we've been saved, is it possible that we're not saved at all? And we've been deceiving and lying to ourselves and that our lies have just continually compounded to the point where we're completely self-deceived. Right? That's, that's the danger of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Yeah, it's a beautiful doctrine for sure. Praise God that he sustains and keeps his sheep. But it might lead some of us to think, some of us who got it wrong in the very beginning, to continue to believe the wrong things about our salvation. Will, at this point, after 10 years of professing salvation, will a realization and an acknowledgement that you were never saved in the first place, like, will that bring you embarrassment and awkwardness? Yeah, absolutely it will. But those things surely are not worth the cost of your soul. And so if you are saved, you truly are saved, you've truly put your trust in the blood of Jesus Christ, Examining yourself truly will not cause you to lose your salvation. But if you are unsaved and you're self-deceived, truly examining yourself will lead you to the realization that you have to cry out for mercy. And so why did Jesus tell this parable? Look back at verse 9. This parable is not told about the self-deceived, self-righteous who thought that they were saved because they were trusting in their own righteousness. This parable was told to the self-deceived, self-righteous who thought that they were saved because they were trusting in their own righteousness. And this parable was told to them that they might repent, that they might see that they have a wrong view of God, that they're asking God for the wrong thing, and that they're in danger of going home not being justified. And so this parable, this sermon for you is that you might repent. This parable, this sermon is for you that that today you might cry out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. As long as God through his grace gives you breath, you can repent of your sin, doesn't matter how long you've been saved and self-deceived. Jesus tells this parable to self-deceived, pharisaical, self-righteous people like us that we might repent that we might be like the unrighteous and worthless tax collector who came in hellbound and went to his home justified. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we just pray, Lord, that you would show us mercy. Lord, we are completely unjust and, and, and unrighteous before you in, in the sight of your holiness. And, and God, we just pray, Lord, that you would grant us mercy. God, I pray that if there are any in this room who are self-deceived, who who many, maybe for many years have claimed to be saved and claimed to be a Christian, but, but all along, Lord, they, they, they never truly understood the gospel. God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. God, grant us mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.